This is the DLA Piper UK Employment Law Podcast, the series that looks at the biggest UK employment law issues that HR professionals and in-house counsel are facing right now. This podcast will give you all the insights and expertise you need directly from our employment law team. So in this episode, uh, we're looking at the introduction of the off-payroll working rules, what's become known as IR35. My name is Jonathan Exton-Wright. I'm a partner in the employment team, and I'm joined by David Smith, a partner from our tax team. So we're looking at this together with our clients to try and understand the regime and what's really required and sharing our thoughts with you today. So perhaps, first of all, a bit of an explainer. Thanks, Jonathan. So, yeah, what what is IR35? Well, it's basically tax anti-avoidance legislation, um, which is there to ensure that individuals who are, in practice, working as employees are taxed on the same basis as employees. The regime itself has, has been around for approximately 20 years or so now. So, of itself, it, it isn't anything new. Um, but what is new are a number of quite fundamental changes to how the regime operates. And originally, those changes were due to take effect from April last year. But like many things during the course of the last 12 months, they, they've been put back as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that means that, that many people will now be dusting off the work that they did um, in preparation for April last year. And for others, there is a, a window, albeit a rapidly decreasing window, to, to put the finishing touches or perhaps, dare I even say it, start making um, a start to their preparations ahead of those changes taking effect from April this year. So let's look at who's involved, what's involved. Effectively, the starting point is looking for a personal service company. That's at the heart of it. In other words, a company that's been set up by an individual who provides their work to an end user or a client, which is an intermediary, if you like, a filter uh, between the individual and the receipt of their labour, the recipient of their labour. What's HMRC looking for in particular? Well, effectively, notwithstanding this filter, they're essentially looking to see whether the individual would have been an employee of the recipient of the services if they'd been directly engaged instead. And so this means that the end user, if you like, of the individual services will be responsible for deducting tax and national insurance contributions from the payments they make, uh, and potentially uh, the agency which contracts with and pays the individual's intermediary company as well. How do we establish whether this is going to be necessary? Uh, Well, you're going to have to start considering this from the perspective of hallmarks of employment status as the revenue refers to it. And there are three key ones, essentially. First, mutuality of obligation. That's essentially a shorthand for saying some form of contractual arrangement. Secondly, control, as you would expect, directing somebody or instructing somebody. And thirdly, the idea of personal service, that you're contracting to provide work as a particular individual, nobody else. In effect, there's no substitute. It's that individual and not anybody. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. So one of the questions that, that we get asked um, as lawyers very regularly in practice by our clients is around this idea of substitution. Lots of people in the past and, and you know, as part of preparing for the reforms, now to be fair, they do see substitution as a magical substitution to, to the IR35 regime. So we get asked um, a lot to include um, a substitution clause in a contract 
on the basis that people think, haha, we've included that substitution clause, therefore you no longer fall within IR35 because you no longer have that key hallmark of, of personal service that, that Jonathan, you, know, you just mentioned there. I think it's really important to to take a step back from those sorts of conversations and and look at it at this through the the same lens that HMRC would be looking at it um, when they're carrying out their status assessments to work out whether or not somebody is genuinely a, a disguised employee or not, as the case may be. And so they're going to they're going to look at the genuineness and the and the plausibility of any substitution clause that is included in any contract. So it's really worth just thinking about that when you are looking at engagements. Do you do you really need um, the personal service of a particular individual or not? And once you've made that that commercial decision, then you need to ensure that whatever drafting is included in any contracts genuinely reflects that commercial reality. Um, so you're not really just putting in place a provision in a contract that, that doesn't bear any resemblance to how that arrangement is going to work in practice. And just coming back to, to those hallmarks that, that Jonathan was just going through there, in addition to those three key hallmarks, um, which are certainly the three key hallmarks that, that you always need to be thinking about, there are actually a number of other hallmarks that you also need to take into account when you're carrying out these status assessments. Determining employment status is notoriously a difficult thing to do because of the need to look at so many different factors and to try to piece them all together and form a view from that kind of accumulation of all the different detail to work out whether somebody is a disguised employee or not. So in addition to those those three key hallmarks, other things that is, is important to look at are things such as financial risk, degree of integration, management responsibility, provision of equipment, ability to work for other people. So basically you're looking at whether or not somebody is in genuinely in business on their own account or not. So you need to look at as many of those different factors as possible and then stand back and try to, what the, what the courts talk about, painting a picture of that overall detail in order to form a view as to whether somebody is a disguised employee or not. I think that naturally sort of sketches out some of the areas we'll need to think about in terms of work streams. What should people be thinking about in terms of compliance and preparing for this regime? I rather suspect that in the past, some people have underestimated what needs to be undertaken in terms of the time available now. Certainly, that's the case. There's obviously one point, which is almost mapping. You know, what are the contractual relationships? Who's contracting with whom for what? Uh, and properly understanding that, and we'll come back to that in more detail, there's the practical issue, of course, if somebody's off payroll now, how will you put them on payroll? How will you deal with payments to be made if you have to now account for tax and employers' national insurance contributions? And then, as David said, there's the knotty question of determinations and what we really mean by status determinations. And there's some tricky issues around appeals and how people might challenge how they've been described and how they've been categorised. David, could you just unpack those for us a little? Yeah, so if, if we take the, the, the status determination point first, another one of those questions that we get asked regularly in practice is, you know, how should we go about carrying out those status determinations? And, and should we use the tools that HMRC um, has made available to, to the public? So for, for those that are not aware, HMRC has made available an online tool for determining the, the status of individuals under the IR35 regime. 
known as the, the Czech Employment Status for Tax Tool or the CEST tool. So we get asked a lot, you know, should we be using this tool or is there something else that, that we should perhaps use instead? And I think it's it's probably fair to say that the, the CEST tool itself has been the subject of a certain amount of criticism over the years. I mean, certainly when it was originally introduced, there was a, a lot of criticism around how comprehensive it was and how robust it was. It has been updated more recently. There has been a lot of work that HMRC has put into refining and finessing the CEST tool. And I think it probably is now safe to say that it is a lot more comprehensive and and robust than it was um, when it was originally introduced. And I think one of the main benefits that people need to be aware of with, with using that CEST tool is that if they do use it accurately and and in line with the guidance that HMRC um, has produced, then HMRC have said that they will stand behind the outcome that that produces. So that will give people a lot of comfort, at least in theory, that if they are using the CEST tool and they're using it properly and, and accurately, that they're going to have the comfort of knowing that HMRC should be standing behind the outputs that that, that CEST tool produces. Outside of CEST, um, it's of course entirely up to clients as to how they would like to approach status determinations. So, for example, you know, they may decide to develop their own bespoke tool or perhaps engage a third party to carry them out on their behalf. There are lots of um, providers out there, as you might expect, that have, have sprung up on the back of IR35 that offer that kind of service. It may be training particular people within the organisation so that they properly understand those hallmarks of employment status um, that we've just been talking about earlier and helping ensure that they feel confident in applying those to particular situations and and using CEST as part of that potentially. And I guess that probably just gives rise to this wider question that we also get asked, which is, you know, who should then be carrying out the status assessments? Yes, I think that actually is a key operational issue, frankly. I mean, the practicalities of who's going to do it. Who should be making those determinations? Is it the line manager who is recruiting? Is it HR? Is it legal? How is it going to be dealt with in the onboarding process? It seems to me that's quite a challenge. And also the question of appeals, David, as well. Yeah, you mentioned it earlier. It's it's another key aspect of the regime that that organisations are going to have to to grapple with. In addition to end users now having this obligation to carry out um, status determinations and and pass those determinations on to the individual um, who's carrying out the work and potentially in in more complicated supply chains, passing those on to to other people, they're also going to have to, to deal with appeals in relation to those status determinations. As to how the appeals will work in practice, again, that's going to vary very much on a case-by-case basis. I think in terms of what we're seeing in practice, um, a lot of people are putting in place similar processes to to what they have for employment-related grievances. Um, But but ultimately, it's a commercial decision that needs to fit with the particular organisation to make sure that they're happy with it. What's really important fundamentally is that there is a a policy and a procedure in place so that organisations know that they're able to deal with appeals appropriately within particular timescales because the legislation does um, prescribe that that any appeals that are received, they do need to be dealt with within a particular period of time. And failure to do that 
can actually have adverse consequences. So a client may well find that they have liabilities sitting with them under the IR35 regime when they might not otherwise have, have sat with them simply because they have failed to deal with the appeal process correctly. I think that also begs a further question to me. If I can just return to something that feeds into the contractual issues, David, I think you and I have discussed there's a real concern about the discussion about how, if you're an end user, you can face liability when you're in part of a supply chain. And there's been a lot of talk about HMRC having this power to roll up liability to the end user if there's been a failure to account and a failure to make payments lower down the supply chain. I think that's a real issue. Can we just develop that one a bit further? Because I think that's a real concern we've found. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that really touches probably on, on two points, two related points. Um, the first one is, is the, the specific one that you've just made there, which is this ability of HMRC to, to move liability back down um, a contractual supply chain when they're not able to recover tax that otherwise should have been paid to them. And the, the, the idea from HMRC behind having that right is just ensuring that clients diligence their supply chains just to make sure that they are comfortable, that they're as robust um, as possible. Now, whether or not that's always practical, of course, is, is entirely another question, but that's the thinking behind this, this ability of HMRC to pass liabilities back down, down the supply chain. In terms of the circumstances when HMRC might look to to invoke that right, I think it's probably safe to, to say it's ambiguous at best. And as a result, there is a lot of nervousness, as you say, Jonathan, um, by clients and by agencies and supply chains as to when HMRC may come knocking on their door, even though as far as they're concerned, they have been compliant with their obligations under the regime. I guess the second point is a wider point, which is, is just supply chain visibility more generally and knowing when you have a personal service company or other qualifying intermediary under the IR35 regime in your supply chain. Because it won't always be obvious to people that when you're contracting with, let's say, um, an employment agency and that employment agency is sourcing the labour that they're providing to you through a supply chain, you might not actually know about that just from the documentation that you have in place. So the, the diligence exercise effectively takes on this twofold importance. It's understanding, one, whether you've got a personal service company in the supply chain, and then secondly, ensuring that you're happy with the robustness of that supply chain and that the people that you're going to be dealing with directly and indirectly are going to be complying with their obligations under the regime. Just picking up on that confidence, David, in terms of compliance in the supply chain, I mean, obviously, people can put in place contracts and appropriate terms and the transfer of risk and obligations to comply. Uh, one can paper these, and obviously we are seeing that. We're doing that with clients. I think the headache I have is that in many circumstances, you may have the most well-crafted indemnity or powers to deduct from fees, but it rather presupposes you can actually get your money back um, or whether or not there's actually just a straw man there. So I think that's a concern. I, I, I also think people are beginning to sort of talk about other solutions and different ways of approaching that. 
Yeah, I guess just coming back to the enforceability of contractual provisions that you just mentioned there, there is a, an important practical point to bear in mind, which is you know, if the circumstances are that HMRC is invoking their right to move the liability back down the supply chain, it's pretty likely that the reason that they have done that is because they're not able to recover the amounts from the relevant parties where those liabilities would otherwise have, have, have sat. And if that's the case, it does rather beg the question, what's the value of any um, contractual protection that you've put in place in, in the contract at all? So I do think that's a, a, a really valid point. And that's probably why we've seen such a spread of reactions, I think, to this. We've got some people who sort of said, no, I don't want any any personal service companies ever again. This is just too much of a headache. And we've got others who've got a gene pool, if you like, that they have to draw on for talent and they have to accommodate this new regime. And I think it, it's very much worth thinking through for each client, their actual needs and their market bargaining power as well. Yeah, and, and I've mentioned a couple of times in terms of the questions that we're being asked in practice, and I think it's probably safe to say that the number one question that we get asked, apart from do we think these reforms are going to be delayed any further, which given what's coming out of the revenue, I think we can safely say it's very, very unlikely that's what's going to happen. I think the number one question we probably do get asked is, what is everybody else doing? And, and the difficulty with that question is that, as you said, there isn't a really a one-size-fits-all approach to this. There isn't really any particular consistent theme. I mean, there are certainly some areas where there is a bit more consistency. So if we take the, the retail banks, for example, there was at least until the run-up um, to, to April last year, um, they were taking the approach of prohibiting the use of personal service companies in their supply chain, which which you mentioned, Jonathan. But that's by no means consistent um, across the piece that, you know, there are a number of different ways that people um, are dealing with the, the reforms. So, you know, there may well be certain individuals who genuinely sit outside of IR35 that have particular skills that, you know, it's entirely appropriate for them to continue using the personal service company because, you know, important point not to lose sight of here is that these changes do not prohibit the use of personal service companies. So, you know, there will be some circumstances where they do continue to have a genuine place in a supply chain. Other arrangements... Um, that we've seen have involved, for example, using agencies more in supply chains, perhaps where you might not have used those previously, maybe just to ensure that you don't have, as a client, payroll obligations um, under the IR35 regime. So using an agency, if there's still a personal service company involved, you know, doesn't take away that obligation to, to carry out status assessments and the potential headaches that might give rise to. But what it does do, it helps with the, the practical processing of payments because the payroll obligations that, that sit with that move away from you. So the payroll compliance, the administration, moving that away to other parties by using agencies, that has been um, a bit of a theme emerging in terms of, of what we're seeing people do. Um, in practice. Yes, I can see that that sort of migration to agencies has an attraction in those practicalities. I mean, I think it does beg the question of how people are looking at their labour use strategy more generally. Obviously, this is driven by tax, but its consequences does mean that I think people are looking further. Is it appropriate to move to an agency? Is it right to contract with an agency? What about other unintended consequences, such as when agency worker regulations suddenly bite when people might not have been expecting that to happen? Um, if somebody moves to an independent contractor rather than being within IR35, would of course suddenly employment status becomes a real issue. 
Uh, there's no filter after all, and there is a direct relationship. So who knows what the true status is? And I know that some organisations have actually decided to migrate people to become permanent employees going forward. There's a raft of possibilities that people are looking at, I think it seems to me, and therefore are properly understanding what your future labour strategy is. Yeah, and that picks upon yet another important point to be aware of, which is the, that these changes to the regime, they only apply um, for tax purposes. So it's only treating somebody as an employee for tax purposes. It's not treating them um, as an employee for any other purpose. So if part of your strategy to deal with these changes is you know, potentially to, to bring people on directly as an employee, then there are obviously consequences to be thinking about from an employment right perspective, for example, um, in, in doing that. And just touching on, on another point that you made there, Jonathan, which is we've been seeing lots of clients use this as an opportunity just to review their, their off-payroll contingent workforce um, population more generally. So, now, this regime only applies where you have a personal service company or other qualifying intermediary in your supply chain. But we are seeing lots of people just using this as a more general opportunity to have a, a wider order of their off-payroll population just to make sure that there aren't any other um, risk areas from a, from a status perspective in relation to that population. Yes, I think we'll only see more of that, not just because of this uh, change, but also because of litigation, landscapes changing and so on. Uh, I mean, I think one of the other things that perhaps we've touched upon, allocation of risk uh, using contractual terms. I, mean, I think fundamentally, one's also got to remember there's a commercial cost here. And who's actually going to bear the cost? I mean, I think that's an interesting question, David. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so one of the consequences of the regime applying is that when you do fall within the scope of it, as we've been mentioning, you are treated as an employee for tax purposes, which, of course, as you would expect, brings with it tax consequences. And, and one of those key um, consequences being from a financial perspective, um, the introduction of employers, national insurance and potentially additional apprenticeship levy costs as well. So there will be additional cost in supply chains when somebody falls within the scope of the regime um, in terms of those direct costs. There will also be, uh, I guess you would say, indirect cost in the sense that individuals may just find that their, their tax position and their kind of take-home amounts reduced um, as well. And so that does beg the question, you know, who's going to pick up um, or absorb those costs which you know, is ultimately um, a commercial decision and there will inevitably be lots of discussions and negotiations around where that will sit. So I guess if we take an agency arrangement as an example, in our experience, in terms of what we're seeing, then their financial model is almost certainly not going to have sufficient headroom built in it into it to, to absorb those additional um, costs that we've been talking about. So they're going to need to find their way, their way somewhere else. So that might be, for example, the client um, who's enjoying um, the individual services or potentially even the individuals themselves. And you know that if that's the the approach taken that's likely to compound the financial impact just because of a mentioned the fact that their take on pay is likely to be already reduced so pushing those additional costs onto them as well is going to further decrease um decrease effectively what they're taking home so there are certainly going to be lots of commercial discussions and considerations to take into account to work out um, what are the financial consequences of the regime applying and where should they really sit 
I think in essence, this shows uh, through our discussion that there are in reality a lot of different solutions for different businesses depending on their needs with the added twist in your last comment that depends on who has the commercial bargaining power in terms of the absorption of cost in reality. I think it's also opened up further discussions, as you mentioned, about labour use and labour use strategies, particularly on the contingent workforce. Uh, and people also got a weather eye to long promised reforms from the government in terms of legislation there as well. So I think plenty to be getting on with. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jonathan. That was Jonathan Exton Wright speaking to David Smith. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be, and should not be used as, a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Thank you for listening. Please do get in touch to let us know about what issues you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Email us at employmentlaw at dlapiper.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode.